Your morning typically hazardous. This is Hank Fortner, and welcome to the show. We recently did an event called the Pastor, Poet, and Rabbi, which if you were there, then you know how exciting it was. If you heard it, then you could feel what happened and you can hear what's happening. Well, as a part of that episode, since we flew the rabbi in from San Francisco, we couldn't let him leave without sitting down to talk a little faith, spirituality, talk a little life, talk a little Jesus. So I thought it would be really cool. So we sat both in my car and at a coffee shop on the way to the airport and recorded two episodes. This is part one of those episodes where we discuss and have a conversation around some of the historical backgrounds and perceptions around Jesus. Because what's always fascinating to me about what the rabbi brings to the conversation that he and I have is a wonderful and extraordinary and overwhelming background information that I did not have that I didn't understand. So if you take a person like Jesus, if you take the teachings like the teachings of Jesus just in their context, you're missing so much of what the historical meaning would be into how a person would hear those words from thousands and thousands of years of tradition. So he gives us a little picture into that and we poke fun at each other and we're having a lot of fun because he's hilarious. So check this out, In in this episode, We have discussions around who Jesus is, what the perception is of Jesus, why there was resistance to Jesus, and how people actually connect to him. So if you're listening to this and you are not a person of faith, you are going to learn so much about what the rabbi can glean on us in terms of how even our Western history and our Western culture of ethics and morals kind of descend from this Hebraic version and then moving towards Jesus. So you're going to learn so much. If you're a person of faith, you'll learn a whole lot. And when I say faith, I mean in Jesus. You're gonna learn a whole lot of stuff as you lean into some of this conversation in terms of the background of where the words from Jesus came and how where he's coming from. And then if you're also a person of another faith, if you're a person who is a Buddhist or you're a person who's Jewish or you're a person who's Muslim and you're listening to this, you're gonna get to hear our rabbi sort of weave in how these layers of faith and these layers of the words Jesus spoke of touch everybody's corner. Hope you enjoy this. I know you will. You're going to have a blast. This is part one of the Rabbi on Jesus. Do you ever wonder what your life would be like? What will you wish you would have done? Get after it already. What's life without a little adventure? We get one chance. Best live a big life. Exploration of the unknown, the hope for something more. This behavior can be classified as typically hazardous. I call it an adventure. Welcome. Let's get started, shall we? Well, we are sitting here at Priscilla's in Burbank, California, with absolutely zero prep. And we here we are. <laughs> Only way to roll. Only way to roll. And I have Rabbi Henry Schreibman here with me, and as I as I butter my bagel. And uh, Rabbi Schreibman, we just wrapped last night one of the most fun live events I've ever been a part of. It was a crazy, interesting setting uh, with the music like one of my sons does in the other room (laughs) as the background throb. Yep. And you had an incredible poet and a pastor with a following and a strange rabbi. (laughs) And that strange rabbi brought the house down. I feel like you're, and this is just, we're just going to debrief the, the night. If you were, if you are just tuning in with us, we did an event last night at the Bootleg Theater in Silver Lake, and we did the Pastor, Poet, and Rabbi, the first ever. And uh, we had Pastor Me, and then we had uh, Rabbi Schreibman, who's with us, and then the Poet in Q. And I feel like, Rabbi, the uniqueness of that was that you had the art that engaged people in the conversation of how to heal the world, you had the history that you really unfolded for people and helped people see in context. Like for me, I felt like your entire opening was so much context for why we are where we are and what we are that was um, disempowering of judgment, disempowering of pride, disempowering of ethnocentricity. Like it's a, it's, it was essentially saying it all came from all these places. It was so beautiful. 
And well, to put some teeth into that, what I was trying to do, and the audience was very <laughs> kind and gentle, is we went back 4,000 plus years to look at the origin of concepts such as what's really driving humanity. Yeah, right. And by mentioning Gilgamesh, which went over like a dead balloon, <laughs> <laughs> I pointed out I was to homeschooled, <laughs> so the likelihood that I know Gilgamesh is really low. Uh, I learned about Gilgamesh like a year ago on Wikipedia. Oh, the, the best of sources. Yeah, best of sources. <laughs> so, um, but, but pointing out that everyone's heard that humans are made in God's image. But the origin of that has some roots into Mesopotamia. And the Gilgamesh epic indicates that this heroic figure is two-thirds divine, one-third human. Wow. And my call last night, in terms of the, the closure as well as the opening, is let's, let's live that two-thirds. Yeah, yeah, right. Be ornery, be right. judgmental, be yep. a pain in the arse, you know, for one-third of your existence. Yep. But two-thirds... Listen to a higher voice. Yeah. Move deeper into who you are. Understand who you are. And then listen to the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just listen. Listen. You don't have to push your side. Yeah. Breathe. Absolutely. Be comfortable. My favorite thing that you said, though, we got a question, and you'll hear this on that episode, is we got a question about does God ever call us to support the lesser of two evils? And I absolutely, overwhelmingly loved your answer that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast. I'm going to tell the person <laughs> who's listening, you have to listen to Pastor Poet Rabbi just to hear uh, Rabbi Schreibman's answer at the end where someone says, what do we do about the lesser of two evils? And that was the most insightful, to me, a most insightful reframing of that perspective that, that I've ever heard. So, And for um, radio, it works really well because I, I literally held my breath for a moment and put my hand up to the audience because I really wanted to think about it. Yeah, right. I didn't want to do like a quick shot. Right. And it was it was so sharp. That's what my wife and I talked about it afterwards, saying that was just, that was our favorite. It was very moment. real. Yeah, it was really real. Amazing. Thanks for having well, us out thank there. you for being here. We're sitting here on a street corner, so if you hear, sh if you hear cars, it's because we are near them. And uh, we're here with Rabbi Schreibman. Can you give us, I read your bio last night, but can you give us a, give us a snapshot of how you would like to be introduced? And then we're going <laughs> to dive into uh, the subject, our favorite mutual subject yeah. which, which is jesus so um the fact of the matter is i'm a real real rabbi jewish guy and i was given three kinds of interests from when i was in middle school and i basically became that person uh, given how sort of whacked out i am in some parts of my life i'm really quite linear <laughs> which is quite a surprise to people who find that out but i always had the performing artist in me and i pursued that and it had an impact on my children and the next generation as well. And um, I always had this interest in religion and God. My father died when I was a little boy, about eight years old. And that gets you speculating about the big questions. And it gets you not sweating the little questions. So that framed who I was and, and working through and surmounting that. And then there was always this sort of academic side. I didn't test well, but I had a deep intrigue and was able to make text make sense and was uh, the, the teacher's choice in history and the teacher's choice in poetry and, and that's sort of a pain in the classroom the rest of the time, which actually permits an audience to fully understand me now. <laughs> so I've lived out those, those three areas of performing arts, uh, the rabbinate, and uh, teaching academically now at Sonoma State and at Dominican University in San Rafael, California. That's amazing. And you were a traveling mime. Tell us about the trap. To me, the, that you're the only mime I've ever met. I mean, I did mime. Don't yeah. don't don't judge yet. <laughs> don't judge my ability to do mime <laughs> by how you know me. My mom was so focused when we would go. We would spend the summers in Michigan uh -huh. at this lake house my grandparents owned, and in town there was this thing, and Carnegie Arts Hall is what it was called, sure. or Carnegie Center for the Performing Arts. And so you'd have to sign up. So I did clogging for a little while until I realized that. That rhythm was not my gift, and uh -huh. I did, like, literally tap dancing, good old Rocky Top. Like, we would dress in the whole thing. One of my favorite bluegrass songs. Oh, that's so good. Then we did, I would do drama, and then mime was a really big part of it. And I remember thinking, like, man, I just, this is not my thing. I, I wanted to talk too much. Like, I really had a hard time. <laughs> but I could do the dramatics. You know what I mean? I could do the The theatrics. flapping of arms. Yes, I could do the flapping of arms. <laughs> I could do the over-exaggerated things. <laughs> I just, I could, I needed to say words too much. 
But I never, when we met, and your son actually is the one who told me that you were a mime. David Tribeman. I don't know that I have ever met a mime before. So tell us about your mimery. Well, let's let's go backwards. Um, Mime now sounds like a joke. Mime has become a a byline joke. Saturday Night Live helped us with that. Exactly. But in the 60s and 70s, it was an emerging part of the art scene. It was nonverbal communication. And somewhere inside of me, actually in middle school, very much like David's start in dance. Um, David's your son. David, David Schreiman, the kid David. In, in, that, in that sense, I was a pain in the ass in the classroom. Everyone said I should be on stage, but I had this thing that I had a poor memory. So when it came to memorizing lines, I would re- withdraw from, from drama. So I withdrew, you know, for one year and then for two years. And then finally, I had a a really important English teacher in my life. And he showed me act without words, waiting for Godot. And he said, there's a mime section in the back here. And you're very physical. You go study this and we'll try something out. And that was my first appearance. I did a one-man show, very intense, uh, a lot of props, uh, a lot of audience, no speech. And based off a famous philosopher. And that triggered my interest. I always loved Danny Kaye, who used a lot of gesture. Donald O'Connor, who used dance and gesture. And then I became a follower of Marcel Marceau. And became a, what I would call a classical mime. Because I didn't appear on the streets, which was one way it was happening. The annoying mime on the streets. I was fixated on making it a theater art and a spiritual academic art. And had a performing arts career for 25 plus years. I mean, long enough that my boys actually came and saw me in Manchester, England. And we did an English tour together in Oxford. And wow. Yeah. And it, it was a way of joining uh, nonverbal communication with images of the, what the best human could be. Wow. And some of the foibles. Yeah. Uh, so I had my own characters that were somewhere between Chaplin and Marceau. But I, um, I was innovating as well, which was by using animal sounds and noises and creaking. and uh, So I would make these uh, sounds that added to the humor and the depth a little bit. Wow. But never verbal communication. Are there any videos of these I'm hoping not. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, there, there, there were people who taped it, but this was way before the media yeah. that we use. Yeah. And Nobody Snapchatted your no, thank God. Your show in the 70s. But, but, but uh, a couple of students asked me to be part of a, <laughs> of a um, fringe theater nice. in Marin. It's okay. like in the 40th, 50th year. And I won, you know, best performer, best something or other, or second best something or other, a few years in the row, uh, you know, about 45 pounds heavier. Wow. So it okay. still works. I wow. mean, it, it, it gestures and... But um, it's an odd thing to be talking about mime with you in 2016 <laughs> as a yeah, serious I don't, art I don't, form. I was going to say, I don't see a lot of mime. And that's how I days. met my wife, uh, the, the boys' children. We met through the performing arts. I, wow. I made mime. Uh, you know, I was fairly forceful in my youth. I made mime a performing art to the point that it was GE credit at the Philadelphia College of the Performing Arts, which wow. is now the Pennsylvania Institute of the Arts or whatever it's called. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And then you became a rabbi at what age? So you're miming, and then you're like, I, hey, I decided that I want to f- become a rabbi. Or well, was that it, was it, was also a it was all sort of simultaneous, because um, after my father's death, it's hard to describe this also, but in the old day, uh, public schools meant mommy walked you to school, okay, picked you up for lunch, walked you back, walked you back to school, wow, and then picked you up again, but my yeah. mother had to work. Yeah. So I ended up in a non-Jewish private school where she would drop me off. I would play soccer in the afternoon, and then I would reemerge at five o'clock or six o'clock. Yeah, right. You know, ride my bike home and climb through the window did and walk the any, dog. Did you get any heat for going to a Gentile school? Um, you know, uh, I mean, from the Jewish community. I mean, were you a part of it? A was Jewish community or was Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. part of it in Philadelphia, in Germantown. Yeah. Um, it was a very progressive community, and everyone was just distraught that Oscar Schreibman dropped dead at 46. Jeez. So anything my mother did to pull it together, she was respected. But yeah. I have How to... Old, what would your dad... What did he pass away of? What, what death. I mean, he death just dropped him. dead of a heart attack. What wow. we now would... They, they had just started to experiment with um, open-heart massage. Okay. 
and it failed. Uh, we were in Philadelphia, and people were just distraught because he, he was the kind of person who apparently filled a room wow. and just lit it up, and he was an accountant, for God's sake. Wow. And he had been in the Second World War, and he traveled all... He, he wanted to fight Nazis so badly that he enlisted in the 30s. Wow. And when the war broke out, he, he was forced to go to school, <laughs> became a lieutenant, and then they find they did the only thing that the army ever did correctly, which is they took an accountant, made him an auditing officer for theft and wow. corporate greed wow. in the South, yeah. in the Army Air Corps. But he he was teaching shooting and digging holes before the war even broke out. And wow. So I didn't really get to talk with him a lot about it, but I was very much brought up in that Army family. And the punchline is June Schreibman made her decision, sent me to this school. Yep. And I was there for 10 years. And at the end, a 200-some-year-old school had me uh, do the valedictory introduction, right, the benediction. Wow. And I did it in Hebrew and Latin wow. at an Episcopal school that had only had Episcopalians for 200-some years. Wow. It was crazy. And I'm still very beholden to the, the boys who are now young men and the teachers who were young men who were father surrogate figures. And that's where... I got the fire for understanding the New Testament and Jesus because that's where the rabbi thing started. Hmm. It started with sort of anti-Semitic, you know, uh, explorations on the part of the boys throwing money at me to see what would happen. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, Jesus killer and all that stuff and some teachers who were anti-Semitic still. Um, so, it was, but that became an intellectual urge for me wow so instead of responding viscerally i responded intellectually and humorously and that became my search as a jew hmm. not for the religious qualities of jesus for me personally but to understand this period the greco-roman period the hellenistic period yep. and the richness that could develop the jesus movement yeah right and here i am you know decades and decades later with doctorates postdocs teaching that Wow. One in a Catholic setting and one in a in a public uh, California wow, state it's so school. so cool that your mom chose to put you in a an Episcopal school mm -hmm. as a young Jewish boy, and now here you are, a Jewish rabbi teaching at a Catholic school. Oh yeah, like it's such a it's still a part of that narrative. For she you was very still. progressive thinker. Wow, I mean, she was yeah. a woman in business before women were in business. When I walk into a bank now and I see all women, you know, bank folk. And yeah, commentators right. on the news. Right, it's sure. all women. Yeah, right. I just really remember when we would sit by the door, which is where mail used to come in, and we'd wait to see if the checks came in because she was a female, and a lot of the men stole my father's clients. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Wow. It wasn't a pretty sight. Wow. And, and for those of you who like media, um, Mad Men did yeah. a really, you know, yep. that was an ugly period. Right. I couldn't watch that show. There was nothing funny about guys with cigarettes half drunk all day you know, making grabs at women, acting right. like they owned the world. Because that was—I saw the underbelly of that. Yeah, right. Your mom was the, was that woman. She had to fight that, Jeez. and and the women thought she was trying to get their men, as opposed to really. Jeez. But the but the core issue is, the the blend of arts, academic response as opposed to a visceral angry response, and the the sort of this comfort in my own Jewishness to the point that I could really explore the history, learn the yeah, Greek, right. learn the Latin apply it and it's one of my great delights is the you know teaching that that kind of approach toward the new testament yeah it's amazing okay so let's take let's go to the new testament let's talk about jesus 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 let's first talk you about jesus. first you got to say it the right way you got to talk about <laughs> jesus jesus so so my academic intellectual passion yeah um has been the pursuit of the historical jesus okay so when I went to college, I, I Which is a weird thing for, for yeah. a young Jewish boy to... Oh, yeah, and very committed. That, yeah, very, like, but very that, I just mean that defined. that's surprising. Yeah. Yeah, not what I would have, have expected. And, and to some degree, I had to explain myself because, you know, some of you listening are going, oh, here's a Jew for Jesus. Well, sorry, gang. No, I've worked conventionally within the, the conservative movement. Um, I've consulted to Orthodox educational settings and i ran the largest jewish day school in northern california no one <laughs> you know my credential has, has a big j on it <laughs> yeah i made a joke last night about you i uh, was ready whenever you're ready to get baptized yeah and you 
said that's probably not going to happen. Probably not going to happen, okay. but I'll drink a lot of water while you're praying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but, but, you're but not a pursuit, Jew for Jesus, but there's no. something about Jesus that is, that's I think what, where we originally connected is, yeah. not a Jew for Jesus, but you're also not a person who's like, don't bring up Jesus, I don't want to talk about no. Jesus. You have this like passionate pursuit of understanding and exploring the historical Jesus. Exactly. And I think that's a really unique place where we can engage. Does well, there's it, there's something so rich about a person of Christian faith not being afraid to embrace the Jewish roots of Jesus. Right. And there's something very powerful about Jewish people who aren't afraid to say the word. Right. And And it's hard for the non-Jewish world to understand that the Jews don't talk about Jesus in their Jewish education. Jewish education, for those who've had some of it, is a very sophisticated system that ends up destroying a lot of Jewish kids. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but the point is that, that given he's probably the most central Jewish ancestor hmm. that people talk about in the non-Jewish world, it, 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 in some circles, spoken or unspoken, is a bit taboo. Right. Because uh, when Jews crossed over that line historically... Uh, in the village, they'd end up dead. Wow. And if the rabbi got too close to the priest or the minister, uh, in these kinds of dialogues, right, yeah, totally. the rabbi'd end up dead. Jeez. So fi- who, who, finish every the Jews finish would every kill sen- the rabbi saying he's no, leaving. No, 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 no. The non-Jewish world would kill the kill the rabbi. Yeah, because the rabbi was what? Because the rabbi looked like he was moving into Christian turf. Oh wow! So so the the restrictions that, that developed insane? within Jewish law are that if a non-Jew comes to you and says, I want to convert, this developed as a legal fiction so that I would reject the person three times. Because you wanted to because be able to Because you want to be able to say to the, to the medieval Christian authorities, they, they were right. always the minority's minority. They were always a subset right. of a subset. Right. The original use of the word ghetto refers to the Jews in, in, in Italy, no which kidding. was where, where the... The, the, the pig iron, the smell, the rotten smell of iron, that's where the Jews lived on an island out it, right within the domain of Rome. That's where the, jo- the Jews lived, the ghetto. So that kind of ghetto living up against the, the attractiveness of components of Judaism, yeah. people would come over the last several sure. thousand years, several that 3,000, 3,000 yeah, years, right. people would say, that's a really interesting philosophy. Gee, you don't have sex with animals. That's really, you know, 3,000 <laughs> years ago, that was pretty crazy, interesting ethical. Right. You actually uh, treat women fairly equally, not equally, but fairly equally. You care about the economic, not racial, the economic slaves that you have taken on. Imagine your credit card going bad. Right. That was slavery in those days. Wow. You would indenture... The man. It wasn't black slavery. It was right. economic slavery. But you actually treat them decently. Yeah, right. Right. You can't take like advantage of them. Your, yeah, right. They become part of your family. And then after seven years, if they really want to be part of their family, yep. then there are rituals. They become a part of the household. As, they, as and their responsibility described. comes on to the householder. Yeah, right. So, so these are revolutionary ethical concepts that are derived to some degree from Mesopotamia and from Egypt, but the refined in the Hebrew Bible. And, the, and that the, was attractive. And the rabbis that was would attractive. have to say no three times just to keep from getting killed. Yes. That is insane exactly. to me. And that's coming from and the most, Catholic Church. Most is Jews don't know from? that. Most right. Jews oh, don't sure. know that. Well, the Catholic Church is was that the, coming, is the that prominent. Is that a pre-crusade? I mean, that's a pre-crusade Oh, it goes right. It continues. Right? Okay. It goes all the way through. Wow. All the way through. And Jews, even in the in the the um, uh, during the time of let's say, the end of kingship and, and the emancipation period in the 17 and 1800s, yeah, right. there was great suspicion that Jews were dual citizens. So, for example, the Dreyfus Affair. You can't really be French and Jewish, right? Wow, the, no kidding. The Jew within. No kidding. And what, well, No kidding. What do you that's mean? Insane. That sets the roots for... No, I know. That's that's, that's that's the, to the, me, the, that's the insane roots. from the standpoint of, as a person who's a follower of Jesus, as yeah. a person who grew up Catholic... That's driven by, that's coming from the church, right? Or is that coming oh, yeah. from the government? That's coming from some state. So if, yeah, we yeah. Do, if we do an empathy experiment, what in all of God's creation are those leaders thinking who are lynching the rabbis who are encroaching on the turf? Are they, do they think they're defending 
Jesus? Do they think that they're defend? Does that make sense? Like what? Yeah. What would be the driving narrative, Look, or was it political? Last they were night, using the church last night, if your audience it? is interested, they'll hear the little segment that that we talked about, mm-hmm. and I didn't quite give it a phrase, but there is a concept called triumphalism. Yeah. You can hear the word triumph in it. Yep. And I tried to briefly describe last night that there is a wedge in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that's not so pretty. Mm-hmm. Buddhists don't have to explain this. Right. Hindus don't have to explain this. Mm-hmm. They got over this. But triumphalism uh, is embedded in Judaism. The Mesopotamians were constantly beating the uh, Egyptians over the head. And some of it was uh, part of the architecture of their world concept, their world view. And the Egyptians were constantly banging the Mesopotamians on their head. <clears throat> Pardon me. And in between the two is ancient Israel. So they're right. sort of the, right. the, the floor mat between these huge older empires. And they're the new kid on the block, Israel. Yeah, right. So the punchline is, triumphalism was the ethical monotheism, not just monotheism, sure. but ethical monotheism that Judaism introduced. And the Hebrew prophets are the paradigm for Jesus, which becomes the paradigm for Moses and which becomes the paradigm. Well, actually, Moses is the paradigm, and then it emerges, and then right to Muhammad. But the problem, that wedge, is that early, early, um, the early Israelites are looking at the pagan behaviors of the Philistines, and they're going, wow, you do that with animals? You do that with humans? You do what? What are you doing? What? Yeah, right. And so there is a superiority conflict, if you will, That moral, our way a is moral right. superiority, oh, not even like a military. No, it's ethical. They're just they were the this, babies. Yeah. They didn't have military prowess. They're saying we're not doing that to our <clears> children. <throat> right. Don't do that. Don't burn children. Moloch. Yeah. Right. Don't. What are you doing to children? Yeah. What are you doing to your women? Yeah. You know, and it when you read the Hebrew Bible in isolation, it doesn't make sense. You read it in the context, you can see why they were pushing back against these other ancient cultures. They weren't very pretty. So most of when you describe... And like then that goes to Christianity, yeah. and, and, it, and it sets the roots of the Crusades. Ours is better than yours, and it goes into Islam, one way Jeez. or the highway. Yeah, jeez. I, I just feel like I wish, I wish there had been some level of context around. I'm still trying to figure out there's a priest somewhere who's ordering a killing, right? There is a yeah. group of, there a hundred Jews in York were burned in a, at a stake. Yeah. And I'm going, were burned inside of a, of a tower in yes. York. And I'm looking at that going, someone ordered that. Oh, someone yeah. said that needs to happen. Whereas in this day and age is a heinous thing. This is in the 13 and 1400s this happened. So I'm going, what? What was the driving force behind that tension? Is it that triumphalism? Is it that we're better than them? Is it that dual citizenship type stuff? What's the threat that they're experiencing because these Jews are holding a high ethical moral well, look, standard? Uh, I've never known Jews question. to be a, a warring people. There isn't a warring language in there, in there outside of, you know, obviously there's stories in the scriptures where that's yeah. part of the narrative and part of the histories, but you have, the Jews are a part of, Egypt and they're enslaved in Egypt and then the Jews aware in Jesus time are really being dominated by Rome yeah. you don't have a they were occupied by Rome yeah. they were occupied in uh, for almost their entire existence throughout the scriptures so I'm going at what point are you reading this and going wow these guys are really gonna a threat th- these guys are gonna take us over they've been occupied since yeah. the beginning of our written histories for so where is that person driving going we gotta right, kill so, these people so <laughs> At Sonoma State, you, you talked about this last night. At Sonoma State, about six years ago, I was invited to fill in and teach there. And we basically started the Jewish Studies program. And the dean at that time said, well, we need something ab- about the Holocaust. And I said, I don't do Holocaust. So they have a Holocaust okay, center right, separate right. from me. I said, what I will do is something on anti-Semitism. But let me, leave me alone. Like you saw me last night where I, I, I shut down for a, a yeah, few seconds. Sure, sure. Awkward silence. Yep, leave me you know. alone for a second. So Dr- I shut or dramatic pause. And yes. you're a mime, so we weren't sure if that was part of the I know, the but I had to reassure you I wasn't being <laughs> okay, a jerk. Yeah. But, but I, I took a dramatic pause of about a month or two, got back to the dean, and I said, I'll teach a class called The Evolution of Anti-Semitism, okay. but I'm not going to teach it about the Jews. It's about any ethnic cultural minority Oh wow! and how that bias unfolds into violence. So when you look at the roots of anti-Semitism, which really isn't the discussion. Which, by the way, pause as we, as yeah. we go through there. 
that is what we're experiencing right now with black and white culture oh, in and America. Is oh, that yeah. same scenario? Part of the reason why I'm drilling down into that, and I know our goal was to talk about Jesus, but we'll get there. drilling down into that is because I'm looking at this going, the same reason that some priest ordered the burning of 100 Jews in York mm-hmm. inside of a tower mm-hmm. to be burnt alive is has to be driven by the same reason that somewhere along the line this tension or this skipping or sure. missing each other, that whatever that, that you wedge don't, is. That you don't see the other as, as a co-human. Exactly, you don't see the yeah. image of God. And it's all, na- right, if you're made in the image of God, that's everybody. It's not a man with a beard. Right, absolutely. I mean, it really isn't. That's more and of a pagan imagery of God. Whereas yeah. I, 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 my, uh, what I loved about Q's poem last night yeah. is when he said, if aliens showed up, we'd all be humans first. Mm-hmm. And it would be hilarious for a giant alien. Imagine these are huge, powerful aliens who are looking yeah. going, why do you guys fight each other? Yeah, what's well, that because about? Well, um, because uh, the likelihood that he could tell the difference between a Jew and a Palestinian mm-hmm. just by standing next to each other would be low. That'd be pretty he's, hard. He's going to go, uh, yeah, we don't like each other. Why? Uh, it, it's a long jeebus, and it's a long story. Let me story. tell you. Yeah, the jebusites, you don't understand. Let me like, tell you who you hate more. And, the, and it would yeah. just be so bizarre in the grand scheme of the universe. So take us to that that sort of evolution of the hatred of a, of a minority? Well, like in this, in this course, I constantly say, I bet you think this is about the Jews. Well, it's not. Right. And so... The, the title so might, have, might have misled them yeah. then. Z- well, but it's all non-Jews in the class. Yeah. Um, xenophobia, the fear of the other. Yep. Okay, so from very early, hardwired into mammals and even birds, we see the external image of, of a, a predator... And we respond viscerally right, to what sure. a predator looks like. You were yep. talking about that last night. Yep. Um, how you respond to certain, uh, uh, literally, a profile. A profile just means how it looks up against the horizon. Yeah, right. That's all it is. Yep. And we respond like that. If you fly the image of a hawk over a baby bird, oh, yeah. as soon as it's hatched, it cowers. Sure. Yep. So long that's how short I feel about is. dogs still. Really, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, so the, the punchline is for this that when you look at the roots of anti Semitism, it's theological. Mm-hmm. They killed our Lord. Yeah. Socioeconomic. They compete with us. Yep. Right? The, the, the fear of the minority within. Yeah, right. They can look different because this was a migrating people that literally fled all the way from ancient Israel, all the way through the Mediterranean, all the way into Western Europe, and then after the Crusades, flowed all the way into Eastern Europe. Right. They just keep moving for the last 2,000 years. Right punchline is that's the same damn thing that happens with every ethnic cultural racial minority Hmm. right so you go from let's take gays they're the enemy within they cause disease right Right. look at the look at the projections we have yeah then when they get stature in the community two men two salaries they're going to take our jobs yeah sure right we're going to we're going to gentrify through gayosity totally right and and all of a sudden it's the same series of sociological projections Mm. on the other yeah take african-americans yep we schlepped them here we dragged them here everybody was in collusion the north and the south sure we end slavery starting with britain starting with all of everybody europe everybody right muslims jews whoever it was there was there was human trade yep not a good thing, bad thing. But the punchline is everybody profited from it. Then we ended slavery, in quotes. And then what was the first threat? In the Reconstruction, now they get dressed up. Right. Now they look like dignified yeah, humans. Right. Now they taught themselves We're and learned neighbors and they bought a house read. and they have a job. They learned how they... to read. Yeah, right. The threat is they read. Jeez. Now they can speak better than we do and they quote the Bible better than we do. And the we is the white, right. if you will, not me, but... Whites in Which that period. Which sounds eerily like women it's in the, the 1930s is like, wait, they can get a job? I didn't sign up for to right. have a wife that had it. You know, like that exactly. same level of... That's why I'm saying you it, take those same... There's a layer of philosophy, theology. Mm-hmm. Then there's a layer of economics. Then there's the social threat. All driven by all fear or fear. all driven by greed? Is it all driven by I have... Like, if you were going to project onto the white majority... Are they going? Are they drawn to a Donald Trump-like figure? Not to go political here, but I think drawn you just did. to a Donald Trump-like figure, and not even picking on him, but going. There's a reason people are drawn to that. Is that because a white majority goes, "I'm afraid of losing this thing I have to these people who are different," 
Is it a fear orientation? Is it a greed, like I want to have more? Or is it genuine? I just, I just, it's hard for me to believe that all the white people in America who are voting for Donald Trump actually hate people of other races. It's just hard for me to believe that that much hate could exist, but I wonder, is, is it, does it look like hate, but it's actually driven out of like a fear? Is it a, is it a panic? Is it a territorialism? Does that make sense? Like well, let me, let because me. in the origins <laughs> of all this stuff, going back 4,000 years, right. this isn't new. No, there's nothing new you here. You made a beautiful um, comparison last night to there was a time when Jewish lives mattered. Yeah, and I and that's I not the chant. Up, yeah, and that's I've, not the chant now. Not the chant now. And 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 there was a time in this country where Japanese lives mattered. Exactly. And friends of mine grew up in internment camps with their right. grandparents because that's what we decided. That's what we were going to do. Seemed like a reasonable we, approach. That was even the the president did that. Like yes. the president decided that, right? Like. So in that sense, it's like this isn't a new concept, and I know that's hard for people to pull out from it now, but from that standpoint, what drives that level of xenophobia? What drives that differences? Well, I think <laughs> you could say that there was a singular cause. I don't think there's any singularity here. That's why I said there are four or five factors in all bias. Okay. Okay? So, so in economics... We know that scarcity creates desperation. Sure. But risk aversion, knowing your own risk aversion, creates opportunities. Right. So when we look at the world and say, oh, my God, here come two people up the street and they don't look like me and they're going to take over the world economically and therefore I won't be able to work is actually poor economic theory. When I see two people come in or 100,000 people come into a, a dead city in America, you know. Sure. I look at them, a mayor, and the mayors this summer, or last summer, said, bring the Syrians. Right. We want new immigrants. Yeah. Right? Just like certain cities went, uh, yeah, let's have a gay enclave. Right. Now, they don't quite say it. Right. But, but they permit gentrification, which is also a problem. But the opening line is, the more new blood that comes in, the more, more new people that come in, the more energy it's economically. It's good for our city. It's yeah. good. But humans react xenophobically. They're yes. fear of the other. And that's why one of my walkaway lines last night, and usually is, the trick is not to be nice to people who look like you. Yeah. That comes easily. And it isn't to love your family like you love yourself. Right. It's the one on the other side of the hill. Yeah. Love the other person and project that love that you have for your own so to So to pick them. on sort of even the Hebrew mindset, I mean, throughout the New Testament, there's such a conversation about the Samaritans. Yeah. I mean, isn't that in essence what Jesus was inviting both the Jews and the Gentiles to embrace, even his own people, to describe even the story of the Good Samaritan, to describe that this Samaritan was this different, this other, this half-breed, this sure. person that didn't count. And yet he's he's telling a parable of the rabbi who walked by the man on the street, but it was the Samaritan who was the hero of that story. I mean, yeah. that, doesn't, the, that, or, doesn't that originate from what he in, he's inviting people to? and? The historical Jesus, as you would describe him, isn't he the one who's pulling people together and going, even the New Testament in, in Galatians, it's saying there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no exactly. male, there is no female. We are all one in Jesus. Isn't that the invitation of a person like Jesus? In his period, Jesus was unique, at least in the descriptions we have in the early Gospels, uh, in terms of bringing back the idea of of miracles and healing. In 250 BCE, plus or minus 50 years, the Hebrew Bible is shut down, and we read in the apocryphal literature phrases like the voice of the prophets aren't heard anymore. Yeah, right. So when you hear about the Maccabees, the story of Hanukkah, uh, we do have a Greek document, which may have been in an Aramaic or Hebrew original. We don't have it. But it basically says the Maccabees did it on their own. There was no big appeal to God. God doesn't okay. come in and smite okay, right, the Greeks. Right. They actually did guerrilla warfare and scared the big bad wolf away. Yep. Sort of like Vietnam looks at what they did to America. Afghanistan looks at what they did to Russia and then America. Right. The little nation pushes out the big guy. Yeah, sure. So that's the mythology of, of the Maccabees. But as a sideline, they say there is no prophecy. So the reports about Jesus is he's doing miracles. In other words, we're in the end of time. And this is an exciting time. That is new. What was conventional about Jesus was that same sort of rabbinic idea, which is the righteous Gentile is as righteous as the high priest. 
based on what? Not on what they say, but what on what they do. Wow. So Jesus has a midrash, a parable, where he says, and you rabbis, and, and, and again, here's the anti-Semitic and, and, strain. And, here's where the crazy, anti-Semitic that's, strain comes that's in. That's fighting words, right? No, the, 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 the no, righteous it's not. General, or the righteous ra- Gentile is just as, as It's holy. not fighting words. It's exactly what the rabbis were saying at that time. In other words, the institution that the rabbis, right. who are lay teachers, they're not priests, many of them. Some of them are. Okay. But most of them are lay teachers. They're saying the Jewish institutions in this Greco-Roman period have to realize, one, stop fighting each other. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of sectarian tension sure. that started right after the Greeks got kicked out. Very synonymous with what has happened in the Arab world, where Sunnis and Shias go at mm-hmm. each other mm-hmm. the minute the authority leaves. In that ancient period, there were two different approaches. Should we stick to the Torah closely and literally, or should we interpret and become contemporized? Wow. And, 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 and that like rabbis, a conversation that continues well, that's right, now, <laughs> thousands of years ago. Exactly. Right? So, but, but and that this, was the battle. That, that was the uh, battle when the Greeks... 2,300 20, yeah. years ago, that sort of opened up in Judaism, and the rabbis won. Wow. So the temple eventually is destroyed, but it was the a rabbis di- won at what we, on the interpretation side? It, to literal interpretation was no, the, no no non literal non literal the rabbis are the good guys now the, there's a problem in the New Testament we can talk about later which is when the Romans get their hands on it they didn't like the Jews right this was a conflict of interest for them sure so they conquer ancient Israel sort of almost modern Israel in 63 BCE mm-hmm. 63 years before Jesus is you know conceived right um, the Romans are already there they're already crucifying people they're torturing rabbis they line people up before the major Jewish holidays particularly Passover Jeez. which was still the Jewish New Year and they're teaching everybody a lesson and they're gouging them uh, with taxes and the Jews didn't like the Romans and the Romans didn't like the Jews eventually a hundred some years later it leads to a rebellion in the middle of that, the rabbis are the good guys, which is they're saying, don't sell out to the Romans. The priests, in many cases, were. Don't stand by the temple as the central authority to speak to God. Develop synagogues. So where does Jesus come from? The north. Right. He's from Nazareth. And if you look at the, the circle of um, synagogues that are, to this day, arche- archaeologically seen and verifiable, there's a whole circle of synagogues around the Sea of Galilee. And that's where rabbis preached. Wow. Much of it was anti, anti-temple right. to some degree right. and pro-people. They were very pro-the people. So what's hard is for, for people who are educated in the New Testament is that they always hear, hear the Pharisees as the bad guys. Pharisees are the good guys. We but do. Now, not only do we hear the Pharisees are the bad guys, they're the enemy. I know. They're the who not to be. They are the ones who... Because those are the they, ones. They, they heap a burden <laughs> on the others without right. lifting a finger. I mean, the, yeah, Jesus, yeah. Seemed to, Jesus seemed to paint them in a very Well, the, this is where the study, light. this is where the historical study steps in. Because okay. Matthew's depiction is a little different than Mark and, and Luke. By the time you get to John and the later Gospels, the Pharisees become the bad guys because now we're writing for a Roman audience. Oh, now wow. they're, now okay. they've said we can, Paul in particular opened up that market share. Yeah, right. right Judaism right. was originally a, 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 a counter comp, a, a worldview against paganism. Right. Early Christian groups uh, around Jesus and or other healing figures were a counterpoint against the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem. Yeah, right. But when you look at the Jewish established in Jerusalem, they were the Sadducees. And it, this is, again, very hard, and I spent a lot of time working on it, and I got this from Christian scholarship. This isn't some sure. Jewish guy coming up with an alternative. <laughs> sure. This is the normative view yeah, right. of when you read it historically. And that is that the Pharisees really are the innovators. They create the Talmud. Hmm. They apply and adapt new concepts to the Hebrew Bible wow. and make it a living text. And they're pro-population. They're pro the populace as opposed to the upper class priesthood. Wow. And when, when the, when, as the New Testament becomes canonized, it takes on a much more Roman anti-Jewish perspective. And that's how some of those texts may have gotten mm. corrupted. But for example, 2000 years from now, to say before this election, the Republicans got along with the Democrats and the Democrats loved right. the Republicans. Totally. And, and the good guys were this. And 
it's just wrong. Yeah, 2,000 years sure. later, it's just wrong. And yeah. everyone in this era go, no, they were talking venom to each do you other. Think, do you think Rome's distaste for the Jewish populace or the Jewish culture was a precondition to them responding to the gospel? Um, because it was a, in essence, it was another option or another way or another step. Like, I don't think you, we couldn't have ever probably, we couldn't have ever converted Rome to Judaism. But we converted Rome to Christianity and got yeah. a cross on the a cross on the on the. I mean, a pope is running the city, and there's yeah. you know the the history of Rome well, is a Christian city. Yeah, so Constantine makes that transition, but it takes three hundred years or so after okay. Jesus' death for that to happen. So I love the question of precondition. It's a big it's a big question, but what what I think is important in, inside that question is what was the status of Jews in Rome? Yeah, in Rome they were citizens. Yeah, right. They were treated correctly. You couldn't crucify a Jew in Rome. Oh, wow. You could crucify Jews and beat up on them and, and uh, tax in Jer- them in, Jerusalem. in Israel wow. because it was a conquered land. And the particular venom between Rome and Jerusalem is that the Jews had beaten the Greeks. They had an internal self-defense system that wasn't going to take oppression. The Mesopotamians had been there. The Egyptians had been right, there. Right. So within this small little culture, it was the little guy with a big complex that they weren't going to take the Romans sitting down. Wow. So they resisted the taxes. Right. They debated with them. Jews who had citizenship in Rome defended the Jews in the other parts of the territories wow. who were being oppressed. Wow. So it's very much like England and Ireland yeah, and right. England and Scotland. Yeah. And so or England and the U.S. colonies. Probably. Very, exactly. I mean, if, you, if you were an American, exactly. I mean, if there wasn't America, but if you're an American living in London, that would have been a non-factor. But you're living or, here or and all of a sudden there's a guy stopping by taking money from yeah. your crops. If you're a Puritanish or Calvinist or a sure. Protestant in America, you had um, a following of people from whom you came in England and they're going, how can you treat the colonists like yeah, that? Right. Okay. Right. So this was, you know, we don't hear that side of the history. So, so Rome had Judaism in hmm. its in its sights hmm. for good and evil. Right. Um, good is that the Romans, and this is much more the classicist of me. Right. The Greeks are the authentic Western culture. The Romans always had envy of the Greeks, hmm. so they used the Greek slaves to educate their kids. Right. And the the upper class of Rome was comfortable with that. The lower class of Rome was anti-Greek, anti-intellectual, and the Jews had become because they're so ancient, right? they adopted a lot of Greek, a lot of the affects of the Greeks. So not only did they have this strange religion that didn't have money being exchanged and sexuality being exchanged, right. they had this ethical monotheism right. where you'd go into the temple and it was empty. Right. You'd go into a synagogue and there was no jewels or right. gold. Right, or imagery or paintings or art. Nothing. And they would look at that and go, what is you know, happening it, here? Yeah. yeah, they don't work one day a week. I mean, you have yeah. Roman poets in Latin saying the Jews are lazy because they don't work one day a week. Yeah, right. But they talk about their antiquity. They're intrigued wow, by the antiquity. So it's a love-hate relationship with that culture. Right. Then when they conquer ancient Israel in 63 BCE, for them, which is contemporary Israel, sure. um, it looks like a big victory. And you can still see the Arch of Titus yeah, right. with, the, with the temple uh, yeah. you know, stuff that they stole. Yeah. Uh, that, that didn't happen until 66 to 70 CE. Yeah. And what Jesus predicted, which was every other rabbi, was that this is going to come to a fight. So when and Jesus the temple was destroyed. So 40 years after Jesus' death, plus or minus, the temple is destroyed and the Jews are expelled forever. But it sets the stage, like your good question, for Christianity to emerge as a strong adaptive religion because it was willing to absorb early Christianity after Paul was willing to absorb aspects of Eastern religious uh, concept like the centrality of blood which Jews right. are, like, repelled by. Right, totally. The Jews have a, this complete blood aversion. Right, totally. But the Romans had blood rituals. Tons of stuff. So the blood of Jesus becomes... A, a, a blend of what they were familiar with. An understanding of how they... So that, in, in essence, and I think it that's part the of stage. the literalism, right? It's yes. part of the literalism. Do you think Jesus was like, guys, I'm coming to earth. We're going to do a lot of stuff about my blood. Mm-hmm. Or do you think they were like, hey, blood of Jesus, blood of the Romans... Let's go with blood here. Was there how much of that was contextualized and how much of that was historical? Um, again, you're looking for a singular 
a singular of course, purpose. Yeah, I'm trying it's, to it's I multi, boil it down. Yeah. It's multifaceted. So you have the power of poe and poetic imagery. Let me, let me imagery. tell you why relevant, relevance yeah, yeah. to that is when I walk into a church now mm -hmm. and I bring a friend who's not connected to yeah. a conversation about Jesus and there's a song about the blood of Jesus mm -hmm. that is weird to my friend who's going, why is it all this stuff about blood? I don't understand. I'm covered in the blood. Yeah. Like when you he sing a song, an actual I know. I'm covered in the blood called of Covered Jesus, in the blood yeah. of Jesus. You're like... And then they contemporize it, and they put it to a rock tune, and whatever. You're and you're still like, singing about blood. That is so weird, <laughs> and my and they don't have a concept for that outside of a Roman existence. Mm -hmm. uh, don't or don't we do a disservice to the the power and message of what Jesus was describing by contextualizing some things that would not be contextual to say we're covered in the blood of Jesus, and then the, all the prayers are about the blood of Jesus, yeah. without realizing that that was actually a communication to a Roman context or to a mm -hmm. Roman And citizen. to a Jewish one. So here's okay. the thread. I mean, this is what I love doing, and it's, we're, we're sprinting along, but it's, sure. it, it's enough to um, excite your audience about listening to us in the future. So one of the, uh, the concepts is that in the temple, remember, the rabbis are yeah. building synagogues at the time when the temple's still functioning centrally in Jerusalem. So synagogues, synagogue, means the place that you gather together. Hmm. But it's not sanctified by God. Right. Like you and I are meeting outside a, in a coffee house. Sure, yeah. And that can be a place of worship and it be, can be a place of teaching. And that's a 2,000-year-old revelation for the Jews. Right. You don't have to be in God's chosen city hmm. in the temple. Yeah. So all in the north, you know, it's a three-day schlep from the north by foot mm -hmm. right. down. You can have full religious life without blood sacrifice. Repeat after me. Without right. blood sacrifice. Right. Totally. The synagogues have no blood, no animals, no sacrifice. That's only in the temple. No holy of holies. Nothing. Yeah, right. There's, there's, no, a, there's, there's a, no need for... There's the Torah scroll and a funny teacher or and a who serious cut that teacher. Loose? Who untethered people The rabbis. From, okay. The wow. rabbis. They are, you know, the priests are saying... And those are, these rabbis are Sadducees, they're Pharisees. No, 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 no. They See, are just they are Pharisees. Third, okay, they're Pharisees. Okay. They are Pharisees. The Sadducees are a political religious party that are tied to the temple and the centrality of temple worship and the non-poetic, non-figurative interpretation of the Torah. Got it. Okay. The rabbis do this interpretive approach toward the Torah. They're adaptive. They're sensitive to the struggles of the people yeah, right. and say, God is everywhere. Then why does Jesus God give is for everyone. Hard, the why righteous does Jesus beat him up so much? Well, or is that just, you're that's saying a that's circle. contextual thing? That's, that is the evolution of the, the, the editing of the New Testament. Oh, okay. So, so for example, where do you have the richest debate in Judaism now? In progressive Judaism. Sure. We have women as rabbis for the last 40, 50 years. Sure. We have gay and lesbian rabbis. It's all happening on the progressive side. Now, will there be a, a strong debate? Are there rabbis listening to me saying, who makes this guy? What does he know? Yeah, right. Right? But there's a strong, yeah, they, rich my, my debate there. My professors from college, when you say editing of the New Testament, they just like, they threw up in their mouth or they exactly. turned it off. Okay. <laughs> like but an understanding that, I think in some ways you're totally right. There's a sense in which the, that contemporary edge is always going to be where the debate is. The exactly. Yeah. And in the progressive areas, Jesus was a progressive teacher, rabbi. He was not a priest. He was not a Sadducee. Mm -hmm. And the morphing 2,000 years later of that term, like Republican, Democrat. Right. right? I mean, sure. Look how the Republican Party has just changed in 170 years. Yeah, of course. Right. It used to be the party of Lincoln. Yeah, right. Right. So, so that, it isn't bad. It isn't good. It morphed. So Judaism is 3,000, 4,000 years old. So it's these, these concepts morph. Yeah. So the debate with the Pharisees is a constructive debate. Hmm. And many of the answers of the Pharisaic approach are Jesus-type answers. Hmm. And he's very consistent with that kind of thinking. Does he begin with the notion of an afterlife? Yes. The Sadducees didn't like that. Yeah. Right? right? That you live and you die. That's right. it. Yep. Non-centralized worship. Good. Lay preachers. Yep. Good. No blood rituals. So that's the punchline about blood. Okay. That, that blood echoes in the Jewish world to animal sacrifice in the temple, which has actually not happened since 70 CE. There is no blood rituals in Judaism, and it becomes a blood aversion. Wow. That prayer, song, and study so all the stories, are the method. 
So of, sacrifice of getting and those kinds of things. Even animal no sacrifice. Animal, animal sacri sacrifice. There's no Jew who goes, yeah, of course, I'm going to go and I'm going to kill my no. goat. And I'm no, no, that's goat. That Azazel type of stuff. No, that's long, long gone. That's okay. 2,000 years not happening. And that ended when? 2,000 years ago. 70 CE with the destruction of the temple by the Romans between 66 and 70, 72. Did it uh, end there's because a Jesus was the sacrifice that ended no, all sacrifices? No, 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 no. It ended because the Romans destroyed the temple. <laughs> okay, got it. But, but in, in the, and again, this is a whole nother course of study, which is how did Paul, a key figure, morph a Jewish sub-sect yeah, right. into a new religious perspective that was now going to be available, understandable, and opening to non-Jews, to pagans. Yep. So what did he have to, to get rid of? Circumcision. Okay. And therefore he talks like Jeremiah about the circumcision of the heart, not the genitals. Yes, right. Okay. Right. Muslims and Jews hold that as sacred. Yeah. If you go to Europe, Christians are not a, a um, circumcised group. Right. Totally. In America, the reasons why we ended up circumcising in America, and it looks sort of popular now. Yep. But originally that was the distinctive mark of a Jew being circumcised, Muslim circumcised, yep. Christian not. So he, he got Such rid of that weird conceptually. Such a weird Kashrut, being kosher. I made a joke about that last yes, night. Right. Um, that Muslims and Jews follow the Hebrew Bible, which one of the 613 commandments and a whole series of them are around you are what you eat. So, okay. not, you know, um, you don't eat predators. Mm-hmm. You don't eat intelligent mammals, mm -hmm. like right? pigs, like pigs, yep. and 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 whales and other such animals. But when you do eat meat, you do an empathetic, one-on-one -on -one slaughter, and it's done periodically, not meat in the morning, meat in the night, and right. the, really just on holidays and festivals. Okay, everything else is more of a more of a plant-based diet. Yes. Okay. Definitely, and and the Garden of Eden is. Yeah, plants. Is, it, it, and and it's very enlightened in that it's all recyclable and it's yeah, all right. it self restores. Right. And the, the Torah is pretty clear about that. So you have to get rid of some of these problems, circumcision, kashrut, and the Sabbath, the Shabbat. Hmm. And at the same time, those become the three markers of Jewish identity in hmm. the Greco-Roman period. Yeah, right. We will fight for being, you know, the women will fight to circumcise their children and will die because of it. The Sabbath is worth fighting about hmm. and keeping the, the Lord's day. Right. So much so that Christianity had to adapt it to Sunday, which is Apollo's day. Right. Yep. The sun god's day. Yeah. So they shifted from Friday night, Saturday to Sunday. Islam does the very same thing by pushing the day of rest on Friday Earlier, morning. Yeah. Friday morning. Right. So that's when the stores would be closed. That's when the main sermon of the week happens. Yep. Friday morning. And the Christians did that, or the Romans did that. The uh, Roman, the Roman Christians. The Roman Christians right? the, did that the, 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 to stick it to the Jews. Not to stick it to the Jews. To, to create something their own to establish unique ceremonies that were reflective on Judaism, but progressed beyond it. Got so, it. for example, An evolution model. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Well, that's what it is. It's, soci it's, it's sociology and religion at yeah, that right. point, because if if Jewish males um, put a kippah on, they cover their heads in Arabic kafia is the the headdress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kippah kafia is the same word that you cover your head. What do we do in a church? You take off your yeah, hat. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. You <laughs> see what I mean? Totally. So it it becomes totally. it it becomes almost the opposites. Um, I told you I did a wedding for two 70-year-olds uh, two days ago. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, you, you have the symbolism. And, and I always ask how many non-Jews are going to be there. I'll say, we're going to be using two cups of wine. The wine represents wine. Right. It's wine. Yeah. Repeat after me. It's wine. Yeah. <laughs> it's happiness, joy, taste, yeah, right. a collaboration between the good Lord, nature, yes. sun, yes. grapes. And alcohol, one of the wonderful mysteries that humans unfold with yeast. And, yeah, right. Right? The sacred right. beverage used to be beer in, in, in right. Mesopotamia. Here it becomes wine. But it's nothing else, kids, in right. Judaism. Sure. But you and I as Christians will morph that so that that becomes the saving blood of Jesus, which becomes the ultimate sacrifice should sacrifice ever disband. And that's how Christianity signals to Judaism 
he's the guy who is the ultimate Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. Okay. Ah, the Lamb of God. Yeah, right. right. Like St. Agnes, he's the Lamb of God. Right. And he becomes the ultimate substitute for temple sacrifice, which the Jews actually didn't care about because it's 200 and... Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's hundreds of years it took 200 years. It was by the time Christianity becomes Roman, it's already 250 years after the death of Jesus, plus yeah, or minus. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, and we got We've got We're going to close this. Um, Good luck. We're going to close this up, and I'll ask this question: If there is something that it, that you admire about Jesus, what is it? I love the fact that through the Midrashim, the parables that have been preserved, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can get pretty close to the historical Jesus. Hmm. When you add the Gospel of Thomas, which is not canonized, and the Catholic Church and some Protestants won't recognize, but it is as rich as the Dead Sea Scrolls is telling about Jewish sects of the time, we have the Gospel of Thomas. There's no Pharisees, no Sadducees, no debate, no Jerusalem, no politicization of Jesus's message. He is the country preacher up and around the Sea of Galilee, preaching to a large group of women, hmm. preaching about yeast, a woman's issue, the mustard seed, a woman's issue, all of these really interesting concepts that show him as the northern preacher trying to wrap around a new spiritual moment before the end of time, Hmm. that the end is imminent. It's going to come like a thief in the night. You're Hmm. not going to know what's the best way to be prepared. Be ready by being gentle to the other. Hmm. Be ready by not being resistant. Be ready by not changing your marital status. Just get ready. Hmm. I think that's a powerful message for any period. Yeah, right. And the Midrashim, the the parables that he create, are very much in sync with the rabbis of the time. Right. He has his own twist, but he sounds like the biblical prophets. He quotes richly from Isaiah and Amos. Absolutely. And he reinterprets them. And the Psalms, and he's constantly pointing to, yeah. Yeah, so I'm teaching a course this, uh, this fall at Dominican, which is, which is social justice and the Hebrew prophets. And where do I go after I teach them that? Into the life and teaching of Jesus and into the life and the teaching of Muhammad, both who use ritually to create their social justice catalog hmm. of who to be kind to. Yeah. So, so Jesus is a natural progression in that and a very powerful one, you know, one point whatever number billion yeah, Christians. Right. Sure. And uh, some of my fundamental Christian friends will tell me, Look who's making the most progress in, yeah, in right. China. Yeah, right. If you were going to become a Christian, what is it about Jesus that would draw you to him? Well, I don't have any plans on becoming a Christian. <laughs> sort of late in the game. Sure. God would be a little confused by it's my never, changing teams. Never too late. Um, and say the question again. Because what, would, what would draw you to Jesus? If, in a scenario well, where I you told go, you, you know, I want to be... A, I want to. I want to. I want to be a Jew for Jesus. Forget, what well, would draw you to Jesus? Well, forget about me. Think about people who are looking for a message that is gentle, um, open to change, caring about the other, and not aggressive. Hmm. Right. The real Jesus message yeah. is just that. It has a purity to it, and the singularity of love thy neighbor, love, the centrality. Yeah, right. of, it, it comes straight from the Hebrew Bible, the Ahavta Larecha Kamocha, uh, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Not the neighbor that's close, but the distant neighbor. Yeah. And the Ahavta Etanai Elohecha, Bechol Avavcha, you should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your spirit or might. Um, that kind of singular, simple message, I think, works in every era as long as it doesn't become triumphal. Right just like the, the pure Muslim message yeah. of, of a God of justice, but a God of mercy. Hmm. Um, El-Rahim is like El-Rahum, the God of mercy, uh, the, the sort of merciful love uh, that Muhammad talks about in Allah. So if you get the right teaching and the right strand, and it's attractive to you in that culture, or you in that preacher, or you in that pastor, God bless you, Yeah. right? As long as we teach correctly about the other that we're not more correct than the other. And Jesus got that. Huh. Jesus got that. Huh. It's Man, I wish, I wish we could get that as a culture and as a place. 
because that triumphal stuff. It's it's about good religious so teaching. So much dynamic, yeah. Yeah, it's just it, it's it's up to the preachers and the rabbis and the teachers and the priests. Yeah. If you want to preach venom, preach each of these religions can support it. Yeah. If you want to find the strand that I'm thinking the good Lord's watching and saying, oh, please stop it. <laughs> yeah. You know, in my name, please. You know. Yeah. You know. Fight for Starbucks or Pete's or whatever, right. or the, or the corner store. Anything else. Yeah, fight about something different than, yeah. and then misconstruing it. Yeah. Um, Jesus would not bear arms. Right. I promise yeah. you of that because there were rabbis that were pro the rebellion against Rome that was brewing, mm-hmm. and there was those that were anti. He wow. was in the anti. Wow. Awesome. Rabbi, you're amazing. No, no, I this is a great so dialogue. Thank you so much for your time. We're an hour and one minute in, and we've just had like just an amazing time. I would keep going, and we'll do another episode. I want to hear time, the questions and insights of your audience, Okay, and we can respond to them. Great. So, guys, you're listening. Uh, you can tweet me at Hank Fortner any questions, and I'll do a follow-up with Rabbi Schreibman. You can also go to hankfortner.com, and you can send us an email, and you can tell us what questions you want us to answer. Rabbi, your favorite thing to do is Q&A. And I can't wait for our crew to send you over some questions, and we'll dive right back into it. But i got to get you to the airport, get you back to the Bay Area. Wow. Thank you so much for being a part of this. I'm so grateful for I love your audience. They're good, gentle people. They're great people, aren't they? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. Take care. Call to. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for being a part of this. As always, you can join our email list by texting 66866 and the name Hank to that number, 66866. And you can join our email list. We have another live recording happening at the Bootleg Theater in Silver Lake, which is a neighborhood of Los Angeles, on August 8th at 8 p.m. As always, no tickets, no RSVP. You come as you are. You show up. We've got a seat for you. August 8th, Bootleg Theater, 8 p.m. Would love to see you there. Thank you for being a part of Typically Hazardous. Now go live your life.